Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Russell Carpenter, ASC, the director of photography for Avatar, The Way of Water. Today's episode is sponsored by Sony Venice. The Sony Venice has been used in more than 400 high-end feature films and productions across the world. For more information on the Sony Venice, visit sonycine.com. So I'm here with Russell Carpenter, ASC, the director of photography for Avatar Way of Water. Russell, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. We were saying before we started rolling that your press, your press right now is probably just as long as the film took to make. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's have, endless I press for you. I have no idea. The, the, I mean, the, 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 I guess the footprint of this film is everywhere. And usually, you know, as a cinematographer, you do a few things, but I, it seems like I'm busy every day. So why do you say you had no idea? I mean, you must have known this was going to be the blockbuster that it is already and becoming even more so as the weekends go on. Well, uh, yeah, besides dreading it on, on one level, no, no, but I actually am enjoying it. Let's just say, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's a lot. And I, you, you can't look at anything. You can't go on Instagram or Facebook or this or that without seeing a huge social media input print. So I get that. And people seem to be overwhelmingly loving the film, enjoying the film. Like it's, it's, uh, almost every headline I'm seeing is like, Cameron does it again. Like, it, no one kind of believed that it could be another, you know, everyone thought it was going to be a huge success, obviously. But it has the heart. It has the passion. It has everything that a great movie needs. And then on top of that, it has like the most incredible visuals ever. It's like, it really is the whole package. And to do it twice with the yeah. same franchise is just incredible. Yeah. I, you know what I'm really enjoying? You know, I, I read the credits and go, oh, that's nice, that's nice. It looks like that's... And, and then you read a credit and go, oh, well, those people had a problem with it. And then you, I mean, another uh, critic. What I'm really loving is I'm going on the sites just to have audience members' uh, reactions. Yep. And that is such a joy to read. It, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's just great. The people are just absolutely jazzed about it. And, and like, when do I go again? That's lovely. What bothers you with critics and stuff like that? Like, is there something that you you read a review of and you're like, what are you talking about? Like, well, it, this is an avatar. Like, do you get? Do you ever get those feelings the, when you're reading the, critiques? The same thing happened with with Titanic. I, I think. I mean, even be even before the film came out. I mean, I don't know if you remember back then, but there were kind of like, and let's say this is a. Uh, you know, 1996, 1997, you start to see things in the paper. It's like, it's the death watch. You know, basically because here's this movie that is just going over budget in big ways, in huge ways. And it's also running late in huge ways. And I, I felt like these people all think that we just go to the edge of the ocean and we throw gold bullion into the ocean every day. And that's, that's not what was happening. I mean, it, it was people were making very earnest effort uh to make the best movie they could except hey there were problems things that we thought were going to work didn't work and we go we have to come back here two weeks later and uh and shoot this again and then you start to get into working with the crews of uh and especially stunt people and background extras uh you're talking three different languages you're talking spanish english and uh especially with the stunt people hungarian that takes a long time you know and um, also, I don't think anybody knew just how difficult it is. I mean, we knew it would be difficult. We didn't know it would be this difficult to work in water. And it just goes slow as molasses. So, okay, that's a different picture. But, you know, that's the kind of thing. But you feel you you there is a sense that somebody in the media is waiting in the wings for, for Jim's pictures to take a dive, you know. Mm -hmm. And you, you feel not as bad as Titanic, but every once in a while you feel something like I'll read a uh, review and it, it just says, oh, that's weird. It, it's more than a review. It feels like a vendetta, you know, mm -hmm. or somebody's got a grudge. 
And and then I read other reviews and they have negative things in them. But I I go, okay, I can see that point of view. It's just that that one that just kind of comes out of left field that I don't understand. Plus, it's always just like the bad stuff. Like, I, I mean, at a much smaller level, but even my own work and even in this podcast, it's like the negative reviews are the ones that stick with you. And you're like, what? why do I allow that to stick with me when I know that there are the majority of people are enjoying it? So, but I'm not here to talk about negative reviews. I'm talking about the positives yeah. here because it really is just a phenomenal, phenomenal film. I mean, I was talking to, um, you know, but before we started rolling, I was talking to your Disney rep and it's like, I am not a long movie fan. I'm really not. Yeah. And to yeah. stick with this movie for three hours plus and kind of feel like I could have even watched a little bit more is yeah. saying a lot um, because that is not my style for sure. Yeah, I don't I I don't know how Jim does it, but it, what he does do is he creates, I think, just by watching him and working with him, everything he's doing is to keep this experience of this film as immersive uh, an experience as possible. And I, 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 I watched him work, you know, in the virtual world, he works his cameras too, even after the performance has been captured. In the virtual world, he can go back to that scene and he can work on staging it any way he wants or uh, he can't change the performance. But uh, you know, I think people say, well, it's Jim Cameron. He, he's, you know, he's a visionary. He's a genius. But what he is, is he will just work these scenes over and over and over again. And he he will dig in and not let go until he has something that really shines, that really is, a, say, a gift to the viewer in the, in the way it's presented. And I, I think that's, you know, <laughs> and for some reason, it's not like, hey, this is going to take a take take a long time. I'm going to figure out a simpler way. No, plan A is always more <laughs> difficult than plan. I mean, uh, plan B is much more difficult than plan A was. But he get he gets what he needs, and I think I I think that sense that at heart he's he's he, he's very sincere in his his quest to give the. So anybody who walks in and pays whatever they have to pay for a movie ticket now, uh, a really good experience. And uh, that seems like his bottom line. Now, at the beginning of uh, Avatar Way of Water, we we go back to Pandora. So in, it's a yeah. place that we've seen before. But largely sure. what is new about this and where all of the audience questions, quite frankly, came from uh, is about the underwater scenes and just the yeah. water the water scenes in general. People are blown yeah. away by this, and for good reason. I mean, this is the first time motion capture has been done underwater. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like you kind of had to create an entirely new way of filming. And I'd like to start there in the underwater capture scenes. Okay. You know, how yeah. our question specifically from Right 96D, and I love this question. Please explain everything you can about the underwater mocap system. <laughs> well, okay. yeah. I, I think that underwater mocap system was was the way that actually at the beginning nobody really wanted to go that way because they knew how difficult it would be, and they said, "Well, let let's do some tests where we we look at what we capture underwater, and then let's let's put everybody on wires, and we'll have all this control, and we can do this and that." And this wasn't even close. It was like motion capture and, perfor and performance capture underwater were definitely the way to go. Now to make that happen, Jim, uh, and this was long before I got it, uh, he designed a tank, uh, a, a huge water tank that, that took up a whole stage. It was indoor. It was uh, uh, like uh, 45 feet wide, 85 feet long, and at least 30 feet deep. And he decided that not only was he going to have scenes where people are just swimming around, but this tank was powered by a thousand horsepower, mighty turbine pump. And so now he could do anything. If he if if he wants to portray somebody being pulled along on the fin of a Tolkien, he can create a real speed in that water that supports that look. Uh, he he could 
it, it had, you know, you it kind of had an elevator in the bottom. So when he sent that to the bottom, now you had a lot of water to swim around in. Then he would bring it up to so he could recreate shallow waters or where people could stand on it. And and uh it was a kind of a Swiss army knife of tanks, but it took a long time to build that. It also had windows all the way around. So not only could the the uh the virtual camera uh, underwater camera catch what was doing on, but then he has all these reference cameras shooting through these windows because, you know, he has his main virtual camera, but he has all these other angles that an editor can use. And then later on, they can become part of this virtual world. So he, he there's a lot going on in that tank. Uh, the, the one kind of miserable thing at first was that, uh, you know, we had, we had to pump enough light or they had to pump enough light into the top of the uh the tank so you'd have like okay this looks like sunlight here and this is all good the the problem was is that water hit when light hits water you know and the water is moving all these refractive things happen and what jim calls caustics is it's like the th well the things you see in your swimming pool i mean there, there's light bouncing all over the place and it was just causing havoc with the the our underwater uh motion capture and performance capture cameras. So uh, what they did, and the only word I can come up with is ping pong ball, and they called them something else, but I can't remember. I mean, this this was a few years back now. They covered the surface in about four inches of these ping pong balls. The ping pong balls being white, basically all this light hit them, and they just totally softened all that light out. So the genius of that is that the problem goes away for um, capturing motion, but then if anybody has any reason then they need to head for the surface, they just pick, poke their head up through the, the ping pong ballatorium that we had in there. And, uh, and I, I love that concept too, because I was, I, I saw that picture of, you know, the, the cast kind of poking their head out of the ping pong ball yeah. world there. And I was wondering what that was for. I was assuming those were sensors. I didn't realize those were being used no, as a no, big diffusion. Stuff. It was just a, a useful thing to help us smooth things out. And you, you need to imagine, and it holds true for the underwater stuff, is that every performance in the film is a real performance. It's that they don't just go create, okay, uh, we'll, we'll just, you know, they have the capability to, to kind of create a uh, CGI human being, but that's not how it happened. He he wanted real performances from everyone, and uh, and then not only were you know not only were the actors down there performing, and, I, and you know you've heard all the stories about all that. How Kate's incredible ability to <laughs> to hold her breath seven or so minutes, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, they were even having uh, people, members of the troupe, and the troupe this is a core group of people that Jim works with and he works with them over the years is uh, they're, they're basically people who can do mime work. They, they can do stunt work. They're very good at simu exactly simulating the movements of the actors when they have to be. And, uh, and then after we had done story, uh, you know, there was, was lots of research done on how whales move. Some of them became whales you know, and they would just kind of move, you know, because now you you can you basically you can make anything out of this movement as long as you have a real motion. And uh, so they stood in for some underwater creatures, too. So they, Why were you unable to capture motion um, with the mocap system underwater previous to this? What what was the problem with water that just didn't allow you to I, capture actually, that data? You know, because that a lot of that happened before me. I don't. Uh, well, I think it was the first time it was done. I don't know if anybody had any reason to do it in the past. <laughs> so, so basically, it had to be invented, you know. And, so. and we've all heard the stories of how cast and crew needed to hold their breath. But was that also, like, what What was the reason why? could You couldn't go down there with scuba gear? Is there, was there no way of having any sort of oxygen tanks down there? Well, the only people down there were scuba gear were safety divers. And any time an actor went down into the tank, there was not where you saw them, but there were at least one or two safety divers, you know, 
there to make sure that nothing happened. Uh, what? But one reason, but they were back a little bit. One reason you don't want to send a, a, a scoop is somebody with scuba gear down is now you have all the bubbles that are releasing out of the breather. Mm. And, and that's a pain in the butt and it gets in the way. So that's my imagining uh, about, and, and I, I think they wanted the people to go down and, and not encumbered by that. And also it, it's probably a better silhouette, you know, a, a person silhouette rather than a person with scuba tanks on the back for the motion capture. So that's my guess. I want to talk about the camera package that you used for Avatar Way of Water. I'm hearing it was 180 pounds, this 3D Sony Venice that you were using. Oh, uh, uh, well, actually, my story is that it was nowhere near that. Ah, okay. After Avatar 1, and it was which was actually, you know, filmed with cameras that had a very small chip compared to what happened with technology after that. It was two-thirds of an inch long. Uh, Jim needed to... Uh, we were going to film this with uh, basically it's it's 4K Super 35. It's about I don't know. It's not full frame wide, but it's it's about 25 millimeters wide. And depending on whether you're framing for a Super 35 or for IMAX, it's 10 millimeters high, and the IMAX is 14 millimeters high. So here we have an issue. Jim's thing was okay. We know the cameras are going to be, or, and the lens package is going to be bigger. I want everything to weigh less than it did on Avatar One, mm. and, and so that started a process of, of a lot of R and D and invention by, uh, you know, basically a fellow named Patrick Campbell, uh, who, who uh, had worked with Jim before, but he he he's really a genius inventor, and he 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 basically worked on all these crazy ways to just one. Let's get the let's get the weight of basic the basic rig down. That was done, and then because of Jim's longstanding uh, relationship with Sony, which did basically their cameras did the first one, uh, he said, "I want I want a camera with tremendous dynamic range, tremendous color depth, uh, uh, and I want it to split in two because I don't want the whole camera on the rig. So what they did was they, at the only thing that was actually on the rig was, was our lens system plus a sensor block. So you basically have, that's it. Then the rest of the information flows through a cable to the part of the camera that is normally there at the back of the camera uh, to the pro all the processing that's in, inside the camera. That goes, uh, well, what eventually became about a 20-foot long cable to um, basically a little package. I mean, a, not the heavy part is carried by a person, usually a grip on their back, because a lot of times the two rigs that we did that had to be lightweight, the Steadicam and the handheld rig, they're on the move. So, uh, you know, we can't we can't just have them tethered to a... A table or something like that. The other kind of exciting part, well, two two things with the camera. As long as uh, we're getting into geekery here, yeah, well, um, geek away. We're ready uh, for uh, it. Geeking away. <clears throat> so everything was done to get this down to uh, as light a weight as we could. But the problem was now we have this bigger sensor. We wanted to work with a four K sensor, and uh, we didn't. We didn't need to work with a full frame sensor. Also, that would require a, a very big lens. But he wanted to work with two, he wanted to work with the zooms. So we weren't changing uh, lenses all the time. So <clears throat> we did a lot of testing and a lot of research, and we eventually wound up with these prosumer lenses made by Fujinon. Uh, they are uh, each one is 2.2 pounds. About eight inches long, which is ideal for being on a rig. Uh, they track incredibly well together, which, of course, is, is exactly what you need. You know, when you when you have two separate images, left eye and right eye, that have to line up. Um, and the amazing thing about these lenses, when we tested them, was even though they weren't as fast as top of the 
the say the Fuji line lenses at their wide open aperture of 2.9, they were super, super sharp. And at first I thought, well, we did something wrong. Let's do another test because they, they kept, they were just as sharp as lenses that cost 10 times more. And these, these are things that, I mean, you know, let's see, I think they cost $4,000. That's nothing to sneeze at, but it's nothing, you know, like. Do you remember like, what they, what they were? I know it was oh, yeah, a while oh, ago. Sorry. I didn't even mention them. That's uh, the the lenses were uh, Fujinon makes them as a prosumer uh, lens. They're they're the MK system. They're two lenses. That's what I'm looking at right now. The, the MK uh, 18 to 55, which 90 percent of the movie was shot on, because we also had a longer MK lens, which was the 50 to 135. But in the in the world of 3D. Uh, uh, you get a much more of a sense of depth if you're shooting in the, you know, in, in the wider, um, I mean, uh, focal lengths. And I'll put a, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. I mean, first of all, the fact that I've shot with the same lens you guys did for small little productions oh, yeah. in Boston, like that's ridiculous, but that's amazing yeah, it, that this just worked for you. It totally worked for us. And I, I, I every time I think of it, I, I, I mean, I, I kind of get a smile on my face that who knew that, these were the lenses we were going to, these prosumer lenses. Now, we did a few things like, uh, you know, we, we took them uh, into the secret shop and made them so so you could remotely change uh, uh, change focal length and aperture and stuff like that. But but basically, that was it. We had And we had to, you know, we had to quality test them by, you know, I don't, I don't know, it wasn't thrashing the lenses, but making sure they held up over, you know, the, the wear and tear was, you know, they were going to fall apart in the first week, basically, is what what we were after. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So you've got, so, well, my question is, I know that you had shot the first one on Venice. So was there even any other question? Like, was this just going to be Sony Venice regardless? Like, that was the camera for this film right off the bat. Well, it turned, I mean, I, I came in, you know, and, I, and, and <clears throat> you know, the, the, I mean, the the template for shooting on Venice was there. Now, as a cinematographer, you walk into this thing and say, "Well, I I think I want to test this myself." Yeah, and, and I did the test, and and uh, yes, it has a tremendous, you know, I well, I don't know. That camera actually came out in two thousand seventeen, the late two thousand seventeen. It's kind of like light years away now that it's two thousand, the end of two thousand twenty two. Things change so fast, so. Yeah. You know, I'm sure other camera makers answered that, but uh, but that the real game changer, and, and I didn't quite see it coming when I started testing, was they this camera had two ISOs, a base of 500, and then it had a a 2500 base, yeah. which is you know ridiculously high. Uh, and you know, I didn't really have any high hopes for that, but we started to test it. And I, and I looked at it next to the other one, and I I thought, God, there's something about the characters of this this 2500 base that I really like. And we tested it again, and then the and then of course I ha I needed to show this to Jim, and and he liked it too. Now there's one big hurdle to get over is that you're not going to get as clean a picture as you as you will at at AS, uh, ISO 500. And there may be noise, more noise and artifacts in it. But um, I mean, I thought there aren't much, you know, this is really clean for this ridiculously high ISO. So the big, the big ask is to go to Weta and say- And you that's your visual effects company. Yes, yeah. Yep. I mean, they are fantastic. I mean, they just the Planet of the Apes series is amazing. And, and they've been working, well, I'm going to digress a little bit. They had been doing so much in the time between the first Avatar and the second, uh, uh, and we can get to it, but on on all fronts, but one of the most amazing ones for me is what what they what they knew about recreating the movements of the face, the, the, the human face, which would transpose or morph into a Navi face, yeah. but there was much more detail, much more emotion, and in this version, you are really seeing the performance that that the actors made 
So, so that was great. But they did some testing and they say, well, you know, yeah, we'd like the other one, but we think we can make this work. So, okay. So this where this is where it becomes a game changer for us because my chief lighting technician and I, we, we were working at the way Jim, uh, we were looking at the way Jim was working and he, on his, on his uh, volume for, for capturing his cameras and stuff. It was amazing. He he had a bank of computers, you know, three aisles deep and he could say, okay, well, you know, move this waterfall over here and this tree should be a little smaller. And you, you know, you just look over and whoop, whoop, whoop. And, then, and this Navi, well, we can't see his feet. So let's move him into the ground a little bit. Nobody's going to know. And the, our framing will be better. We won't have to be so low to see, you know, if we've got a human in the frame, but we'll still get the same effect. So uh, Len, my chief lighting technician, and I are looking and say, wow, he, he, he's got a way of working that is very, very fluid. And we know we're going to be facing a lot of different challenges because we could be shooting one thing one day and the stage could be huge. And then we're on another stage the next day and we're shooting a completely different type of scene. So we said, okay. So, so Len said, well, let's just, instead of the regular lights that you might have in the situation, let's just use movie lights. Now they don't put out what, you know, the bigger lights will put out, but the advantage is they can be incredibly precise. You can change them to be any color. Uh, and, and if you're going down one path and you realize this isn't working, you can, I mean, you don't have to send people into the, you know, into the perms to do that and so, wait on uh, How do you mean? What can explain the distinctions? Are you saying movie lights versus what? What was the alternative? Oh, okay. Well, uh, what I should say, moving lights. These are lights that are usually associated with, say, rock and roll shows. Yeah. You know, or or the the types of lights you would see on American Idol, and so that's what we started to surround the set with, and we tested it, and and so now, given this this tremendously fast ISO that Sony provided us with, we could work with those lights. And of course we had, you know, in, a, in our, our little Swiss army knife of, of lights, package of lights, we were, you know, a lot of it was these movie lights set up, you know, we knew what the scene was going to be. And, and we, we didn't entirely blanket the, the, the ceiling of the studio in, in uh, you know, it's not 150 lights, but it's a lot, a lot of lights enough to do the scene and make changes. So there, and then we have a lighting board operator who's, you know, pretty genius. And, uh, you know, we, anyway, it made moving and making changes much faster. Uh, you know, what, what Moro, who, Fiore, who did an excellent job, uh, uh, great job on the first one but his technology was stuff you wanted to change the color of the light somebody had to walk over and change a gel on the light yeah take some time uh then the light has to be aimed and fit and that takes some time this this was pretty instantaneous and so what we found out especially in the jungles is that we could use them as hard light as backlight if, if say spiders running through the jungle and and you you're wanting to hit the same spots that the virtual lighting is. You're there's basically where what we're doing is a lot of blue screen. We may have the uh, topography of the scene in the virtual world. So if spider needs to run down a ditch, jump up, run over a little hill, hit all that's there. And maybe in that blue screen environment, of course, there are some plants fronds that, you know, he can run by and hit and, it, uh, you know, and and that's all merged in with the, the virtual, this virtual forest, which just isn't there. So what we have to do is, is create this environment with our, uh, with our lighting. So that was great. If we needed some beautiful soft side light, we would take these lights and we would hit them into a big, basically a big white car, you know, a 12 by 20, frame of white material. And then if, if that, if, if that light needed to be, instead of feel like, instead of feeling just like daylight, we wanted to feel a little green, like it had come through a canopy. We could instantly um, make that kind of change. I, I so that was uh, a major game changer. Um, well, I have a question because if you're working at that high of an ISO, 
are you stopping down a lot? Are you just minimizing how much light you have? Like what, how, we're, how are we're you basically, we're, we're basically, a lot of the time we were still shooting wide open just to make uh, our, our movie lights perform like they were, you know, huge beams of sunlight, Yeah, you know? So they would come through and they'd actually not just expose to the, what you call, okay, that's correct exposure. They would expose three to four times hotter. Uh, so when somebody runs through those lights, they kind of explode in the, in the light. Yeah. And that was the effect that we, that we wanted. So now, you know, again, I, I didn't say it before, but when you're working in 3D, you're, the mirror system that you're working with is going to steal almost a stop of light. So, so, all right, the, you've lost a stop. Yep. And then uh, we, our, our base frames per second rate was 48 frames. Yeah. So that second. cuts some of it down so too. There you, already <laughs> you're in the hole two stops. Th then, then this high ISO more than made up for that. So that's that's why we went that way. And, Something and it, that was no. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh no. It, so it's amazing. So then you would walk on to uh, our our set, and, and you would think in a lot of situations like, why is it so dark in here? Why are they shooting three D? I shot three D back in nineteen ninety five with Jim. Our three D unit was about the size of a refrigerator, and the amount of light we needed, we were shooting at night out in the desert. Uh, you know, you, you'd be driving, you know, you'd be away from that and you turn around and it just looked like a nuclear explosion. That much light was, was what we needed. And this was a mere fraction of that. Well, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because there were moments in the film that I was watching that I was like, you know what, this kind of almost gives me like an old Hollywood vibe because it had like when the sunlight hit, you had really harsh, like uh, almost like a crimsony kind of. Uh, yeah. background when you're getting the moonlight and the sunlight was just so bright and you could see it on the shoulders and the bit and the neck. Yeah. And it was, it was giving me kind of that old school Hollywood vibe. So it's interesting well, to hear how pinpointed those lights that were. You say it, say that, because I mean, here we are dealing with a lot of, uh, I mean, you know, very advanced technology and, and you'll see it in Titanic. I mean, basically Titanic was a very old school. I mean, the, 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 style of the photography was was really kind of a nod to what David Lean was doing in like things like Dr. Zhivago and mm. other other films. And uh and uh yeah, there's a lot of Jim that I mean I mean you look of course you look at the things that he's doing with the spaceships and and RDA has a certain I mean nasty architecture to it. That's the the human yeah. environment of the of the invaders, but I, I mean, there's there there is a lot that harkens back to, you know, you don't you don't to, to something that's a little classic, you know, about his his style. Yeah, you had mentioned something when you were talking about filming underwater that you had like a small lens unit and then a cord that went out to your camera. It sounds a lot like the Rialto. Was that basically like the oh, beginnings no, of uh, the, the Rialto? No, actually, uh, sorry to say, I mean, the Rialto, oh, totally, the, totally the same thing. I mean, the Rialto, I think, kind of hatched because of. Yeah, uh, it seems the, like that. Yeah. So uh, when I first saw actually a mock-up or <laughs> what is the Rialto, it, this was at Cinegear or something like that. They, they had a definite tie-in with uh, Avatar in, in Sony's, uh, you know, booth. Yeah, uh, and then they and then I think up on one wall you saw the Rialto, um, and uh, yeah, that that definitely was was part of the that gestation was was part of having an association with Jim. I think as far as that goes, unfortunately, our uh, when we did get into our underwater units, uh, you know, you're housing a 3D rig, and 3D rigs, even as small as you can get them, are are still rather bulky. So we we had these rig uh, these you know basic housings that were specifically made for you know the silhouette needs of our uh, you know our smaller camera systems. Still, you wind up with something that's about three feet wide by 
almost three feet wide. And the issue with that uh, was uh, basically heat buildup because all of our tanks, we had shallow tanks, we had deep tanks. We They're, they're built for humans to be in, which means that they're not, it's not ocean temperature water. It, it's, you know, kind of lukewarm to bathtub warm. So you can you're not going to have your actors run in and jump out of the the tank every every three minutes. Yeah. So, so there was a heat buildup with that, and we'd have to every once in a while we'd have to track our our cameras out and put them basically put them in an ice bath for <laughs> for, for eight minutes or something before we could. Which that's you know, but uh, you know, there's very little room to vent that heat when you're when you're in a uh, housing like that. Uh, you know, shoot it. Eventually it got around to, okay, we've had all this wonderful uh, stuff that Jim did in his tank that is performance captured that is a virtual world. Eventually we have to get back into the various tanks where we shot our live action stuff. And I, I'm very sad to say that that was almost as <laughs> frustrating as when we were shooting Titanic. It was like, somehow you put a camera in the water and you need, and you still need lights to light the thing. It still takes a long time to do that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. part, part of the budget, I mean, the, the schedule in Titanic was, hey, we're moving six times slower than we would move if we could just set this light down and walk away from it. So, um, you know, it's, it's those things required patience. Our uh, spider was wearing a, ma a breathing mask mm -hmm. when we were shooting, uh, you know, in our sets. Uh, visual effects opted just to put the mask in virtually. Now he's wearing a real mask. And you, okay, you get your actor down in the water. And in the reflections, you can instantly see how the movie was made because everybody's, <laughs> out, you know, everybody's out there. You, know? you don't need a behind They're the scenes crazy. film. Just show the version without the visual effects on the screen. <laughs> yeah. No, it was like, okay, this, this isn't going to work. We, so we tested this mask. Uh, Jim and Dan Cox, our visual effects supervisor, they, they kind of put the mask in basically copied it into a computer and experimented with different versions of it. And we came up with a version that looked pretty much like it was supposed to be, but at least was filmable, yep. you know, and that just became, that also just became thing. But even though it was a better mass, there were just all these reflections that we're just trying to keep out of the movie. We have a couple questions specifically about the 24 or the 48 frames per second versus 24 capture video productions and Fabrizio Diaz, both on Instagram wants to know the reason for shooting 24 uh, for the reason for shooting 48 and also the reason why you kind of what appears at least to be kind of like a 24 version of the 48 for some of the yeah, more dramatic yeah. scenes. And, uh, you know, the post was dead in New Zealand. Jim, in the middle of filming, Jim said, I'm just moving to New Zealand. You know, <laughs> he took his, sold his houses. The family came over, and there he was. He's, it's like, I'm not moving out of this country. And so all the post was done there. So I was not privy to every de decision. But the but when we were, we were starting, the, you know, in terms of our tests, what we were thinking is there were a couple reasons for shooting 48, is that, when you start with 48, you have twice as much, twice as much information as say shooting at 24 for what it have. And it really helps them to have uh, all this information. And then he said, oh, okay, there's the original part of the original thinking is not every every part of the world is is going to see this film at 48 frames. Not every part of the world is going to have, you know, a Dolby IMAX theater to see this. So we had IMAX versions at 48 that, that were basically kind of a glorified 1185 uh, uh, aperture. And, and then knowing that we'd also have a... Uh, 239 version to show in theaters. And then Jim said, okay, we shoot at 48. I mean, uh, which is, of course, uh, you know, 
it's twice 24. So then they'll sample, make a sample of the movie that becomes uh, 40, uh, 24. Yeah. Now, um, you know, and this is, it, to me, it's really interesting because the 48, I felt it, I felt immersed in the film. And yet I, I, I do hear people say, oh, what's this motion smoothing going on? The motion smoothing wasn't just no technique. It was just, it was just the offshoot of shooting at 48. Uh, that, uh, you know, and I, I don't know, kind of as an end user. And I try to put myself as here I am, a person sitting in the audience enjoying this movie. There wasn't that shift didn't take me out of the movie. He, he, he also, he could do things for action scenes with a 48 frame base, you know, in terms of little tweaks he had to make in case there was any judder or, you know, some artifacts he could, he could deal with that better at 48, but, you know, he, he did. And especially just with close-ups where kind of people are sitting around, he, he went back, he went back to 24 because he felt like the 48 was just a little too, I don't know, uh, work, work much work, much better for the virtual than it, than it did for some of the, the human scenes. And it's risky because, I mean, The Hobbit got really bad oh, yeah. critiques for, I, I don't think that was 48 though. Was that 72? I don't remember. Uh, I, it was either that or 60. And, and my experience, because it's seared in my mind of going to see Hobbit, you know, back then was, this is almost, you know, this is really hard to watch because I just feel like I'm in a, a plate, looking through a plate glass window. Yeah. I mean, were you concerned about shooting 40? I mean, obviously you tested it, but when you were first, when yeah. you were first told that was the plan, were you kind of like, oh, how are we going to do this? Did it no, frighten you? No, it wasn't that. We did, <clears throat> the additional thing we did with the 48 is we tested a bunch of shutter angles. Mm. And we said, we don't, if we shoot at 48 and we just, go with the traditional 180 degree shutter angle, it's going to look, it's going to be closer to the Hobbit and we don't want that. Yeah. So we started to give ourselves, we, we tested a bunch of different shutter angles and shooting slow moving scenes and shooting a person moving very fast. And we thought kind of as a base, we found that very pleasing and, and it felt like, Okay, there's nothing here that's going to take, in our minds, take take a viewer out of the, out of the, the movie. What, what did you choose for shutter angle? Actually, I think somebody, oh, uh, somebody oh, asked. Oh, um, Toivo Tavanian oh. on YouTube asked about it as well. Oh yeah, it was like, it was weird. Yeah, you, you you put ten people watching that our test, and they might have come up with ten different shutter angles. But basically, uh, in the ones that counted, you know. Uh, we basically agreed and we wound up with 275 degrees shutter angle as our base. So that, that almost took us back to what you'd see if you were shooting at 24 frames per second. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about a cinematographer, a director of photography's role in a film like Avatar, where it's so largely visual effects. I mean, we had... Um, Oh, what was his name? Oh, Caleb Deschanel on for The Lion yeah, King. Yeah, oh my God. He is, so, he is amazing. He was talking about The Lion King, and there's obviously some dif there's differences. I mean, The yeah. Lion King was completely in 100% virtual, no live action at all. Yeah. You're in a different situation because you have real humans in the scene. You also have this incredible virtual world. And it seems like your role goes, you need a lot of prep, but it also seems like you're quite involved in the post-production and the lighting of the environments well, in and of themselves. Yeah, uh, in a way, it's interesting. Live act, in a, in a way, some of live, what we did live action was kind of a post-production because, first of all, it, it, it's the same and it's very different. The same meaning you're, you're trying to create some kind of texture and mood with the lighting, uh, an ambience that that's conducive to the story, uh, uh, you know, and also, you know, Jim and I would talk about every, you know, uh, I said, okay, I'm doing this. Uh, anything I need to know about this? And like, there was a scene of uh, uh, Kiri and Sully, they're kind of on this floating dock and down below in the water, you see uh, 
I mean, it's just this beautiful bioluminescent mm. kind of aquarium uh, of all these fish down there, almost tickling their feet. And and he, I said, well, anything you I need to know about? He said, just he said, just play with the bioluminescence and and just just play with that. And of course, that's that's the first clue as a director of photography said, okay, I'm this light that's going to light them is coming out of the water. And then I thought, well, let's play with, you know, what we call caustics and let's play with these ripples on uh, these virtual characters uh, faces. And so we played with it and, and we said, Oh, we think we have something here. This is pretty good. And then, then of course there's all kinds of parts of the scene that aren't that motif that you light and stuff like that. But there was always a discussion, you know? Uh, uh, and then, um, so what happens is that in one way, I, I'm lighting, but I'm as he's doing his cameras, if he's doing his cameras of that scene, not often he was doing something else, I would start to see changes in what he was doing because of this flow of action. And then I, the next day I went to work with the lighting, I'd see, hey, wait a minute, all those baskets in this Marui, they weren't there yesterday. You know, you just saw, it's very, very plastic. Everybody's working on the same thing, molding it from their, their department. And uh, so, and then he, then when he's doing cameras, he starts to see what I'm doing with my lighting. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, so, so that's how uh, kind of that, that went. But then I'm also building, while I'm doing this, I, of course, I have to think like I'm in pre-production and I'm seeing, okay, wow, this is going to be a problem when we get to live action. And the creativity starts, I mean, there's creativity about the lighting, but then the creativity starts to, to start to arc toward, okay, what's the creative way to do this thing that I'm seeing? How do we do this? And then we get helped because all this information is flowing around our little ecosystem of information. We get, we start to get tech viz done that exactly tells us Jim's camera started here and it got this far. And, you know, the way his system is set up, he might move five feet on the volume, but he might ratio it to uh, 10 feet per every foot he goes. So now you have this massive, maybe camera crane move that, of 50 feet. And now you still have to start thinking, look at what he did. Basically, how do we do that? We know our, uh, you know, we're not, we'll never do this on a camera crane. Maybe we use a camera car. You know that kind of thing because these these stages were really big. Yeah, and uh, uh, so now you have your team and you're starting to. I go from uh, a more creative uh, mode into the worry and angst mode, and we, we, which pretty much plays for the end of the movie till the end of the movie was okay. Are we making the right decisions and and how we are going to you know cap this amazingly visual movie how we're going to kind of cap it with our live photography and of course we had a lot of live uh, in both movie two and three uh sets where they're mainly humans and every once in a while you had a navi in a human environment and then things would start to shift to the point you no know, now you have humans in navi or metkayina environments and by the end of it, I mean, once pretty much everybody had gone, now we were stuck with a growing spider. You know, so, so somebody, when, when I first saw him, was like this cute little teenager, young boy, like 13 years old or something. And by the, by the time we get to photography, he's, he's totally different. And you're just <laughs> praying that he doesn't look, you know, he doesn't have kids who are graduating from high school by the time you're done. You yeah. know, that thing. And so well, isn't that largely one of the reasons that you're doing two and three at the same time? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And also COVID didn't help because we we had one block of filming. We said, let's, hey, let's, we're going to break for Christmas and come back maybe in uh, February. But when February happened, we were starting to get, well, you know, the beginnings of the pandemic. And a few weeks later, we had a situation where New Zealand and rightly so did not want to let filmmakers back into the country because yeah you know uh after a lot of bargaining uh you know with Jim and John Landau and you know and they, they both worked in New Zealand before they both had people that they could talk to 
uh, kind of a deal was struck that if we had just super tied up COVID protocols, that we could come back to the country. We had to we had to test, uh, you know, a bunch before we left. Everybody wore, wore masks and shields on the plane. It seems ridiculous, but it was what it took. Yeah. Uh, and the plane was a charter plane. We get off the plane. We're loaded into buses. You know, it's it's like a close encounters of the third kind. You know, yeah. <laughs> hey, look at all the dead sheep on the side of the road. No, it, it wasn't <laughs> that bad. But but then we go right to the hotel, and here's your home for the next ten days. You're not going out of the room. Mm-hmm. You understand? <laughs> and so there we were. But when we did finish that, we walked out into a society that was virtually COVID free. You know, which was not the case in the United States. Yeah. However, we had these massively tight COVID protocols when we were shooting. We didn't want to get kicked out, of course, and we didn't want to screw it up for other uh, international productions that wanted yeah. to come back. And, and so that that turned out really well. But it did it slowed us down so much. The pressure was really on to shoot uh, Jack Champion, who plays Spider, out as quickly as we could. And by that time when it was really a spider-centric world, just my angst daily was, yeah, okay, yeah, one job, you know, and that is to embed this character in these jungles, in these on these beaches, you know, on these in these sanctuaries or whatever, all the different things. And it has to be seamless because I I, just, I believe that just people inherently know when something's a little bit off you know if if you shoot a daylight scene everybody knows what sunlight feels like yeah and i mean you have a little bit of leeway because you're creating a world but still it can't be too far out well, but yeah there is that and whatever <clears throat> jim did whatever i did it, it it did all that information flowed stayed with it with the production so i could look at something i did you know, basically a year and a half ago and go, okay, that was the color of the light. This is, this is coming from this direction. And of course that's part of the, the, the problem is just creating a, uh, a light that just coherently seems right for what's happening in in the virtual world. I want to make sure I understand the way, like just kind of a, an overview top level idea of how, production worked on Avatar um, Way of Water? Because I'm thinking like, all right, did it start with visual effects? Did you create your worlds first and then do the motion capture and incorporate it into it? Like Uh, what what were the steps? I'll try and get through this as quickly as possible. This is kind of like a layer cake, but you you start with one layer and uh, then halfway through that layer, you're already starting to build the second layer. Okay, first thing starts with the script. Basically, the only visual thing that's happening at that time is that production designers are ha- are hired and they start pumping out one production designer for the world of Pandora and the other for RDA. They are starting to pump out visual scenarios that uh, uh, concept art that Jim approves. The, the writers are looking at this. They, they kind of write a lot of their script to this. And then also some... Also, environments are created by what the writers wrote. And so, okay, already things are starting to get mixed mixed up a little bit. But then, so you have that. Then you have your scripts. And now you have to create an environment, a world for all of this. That takes a while, you know, to to do all that virtual work. So that could be a, a year plus or a year and a half down the road. Now, Jim comes in with his virtual camera, which is basically it's a, it's an iPad that is, is so souped up in terms of like what it can do. And then also Jim is, has all these people at computers sitting behind him when he's, when he's working this way. And he actually has to scout the environments, mm. you know, say, is this ample enough and correct enough for me to be shooting this? And he may sign off on that environment, but that environment that layer could still be worked on up until the day you know, we, we leave for uh, New Zealand. You yeah. know? So, and then the next process is, okay, he's going to block his scenes. He starts to work with his troop, this really gifted group of, of people. 
And they stand in, they could stand in for any actor or anything. And he blocks his scenes and he does an initial blocking of that scene. That happens on his virtual camera, but that's only the wide angle camera. What he's also got in his quiver is he's got what eventually, you know, started out as like four other cameras, eventually turned into an army of 16 camera operators and their cameras. And they would, they got really good at this. They would play the zone system and they would blanket the action with all these different angles. This this character uh, from this angle, this character from this angle. So basically, even though they're reference cameras, because it's all captured into this motion capture or performance capture system, that scene is, is there for Jim to cut. So he goes and he cuts the scene. And he's, he cuts enough scenes so he can get started with the actors. And now the actors come in and they know now it's been blocked out. They, they, they don't really have to do any blocking. They know exactly where they're supposed to go. And they do a performance where all the cameras, they're still reference cameras, but they're very far away. And the only camera on the set, no equipment, no real lighting. Uh, they can do their performances. Mm. And now, so... This is a, this portion portion of the capture is very performance centered. Now that goes back to the editors and and, and Jim Jim he had a process with he was editing these scenes with he he had he had three there were three other editors and they were busy uh, editing these scenes and now now by this time I've come in and I'm starting to light some scenes and also starting to do my prep. And uh, so he basically up up until the day we shot, it seemed like, and then ev we even had a small motion capture uh, stage in uh, New Zealand. Uh, even when we were shooting at the end of the day, he, he'd go back and work on his cameras, work on his visualization, the final visualization of how he was going to shoot uh, the other scenes. So, so, so you have many, many different layers it seems like a crazy ass way to make a film, but uh, you know, I think it was just complex enough for Jim. And I think part of the thing is he just loves to challenge himself. He is he's like he's an explorer, and he just wants to explore and go there. And and I've mentioned this before, but you know, I hear him say I've heard him say more than once. He says, you know, we don't really know how to make this picture, but when we're done, we will. And he's <laughs> assuming. You know, in his provocateur mode, he's going to throw enough challenges out and they're going to be met by members of his team. And uh, and uh, and and, he, you know, that's his bet. And he, you know, he, he's usually pretty good about his his betting. I, I hope I didn't leave anything out. Oh, but when. It, OK, so here are, we get we get to live action and I'm just basically here's what I got to do. <laughs> I have this one fabulous tool that helps me with my my lighting. What is it? Because we had this this thing called Simulcam, which basically Jim worked with when he was capturing. It basically because Jim's laptop or whatever has these crazy looking antenna on it. So uh, all the performance captures like uh, they know exactly where he is. They know exactly what he's doing. The computer knows exactly where he's tipped up, down, he's moving, he's panned this way. The computer knows exactly what he's doing. So now it just shows him what in that virtual world he, he's looking at. So uh, he's got that. Now, so he's able to monitor the virtual world as totally. he's moving the camera. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that that's totally, you know, so he can see the environment. He can see all his virtual, you know, and he, and he has the power, you know. And for somebody like Jim, who who is, you know, the control freak's control freak, I mean, he can change anything. He can say, which which I, I, I thought he wanted to do with his live action films was, hey, move the sun over there. Yeah. 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 So that can be done. Now, all that information's in the information ecosystem. We get to uh we we get to New Zealand, and especially when I'm shooting the uh the spider stuff. I have this information, but they have this crazy good uh, compositing system, which which they were developing up until the last minute. The, the, the program's called Simulcam, but what they did is 
They also fitted a depth sensing <laughs> program onto it that used, like, kind of used it. Part of it was the where the camera was focused, but then it had uh, depth monitors that were attached to the camera. And so that system knows exactly where, let's say, where Spider is. And say he's deep in a swamp or he's out... Uh, or he's out walking through the forest with, uh, you know, his Navi family. It knows where he is. It knows where everybody else in the frame is. And it does an amazing composite where it takes everything. Uh, all it does is it, it basically embeds the actor in the scene. Without, you know, some of the things you had to do, like you'd have, you get, you were doing composites and you're doing, oh, this is a 50-50 composite, or this is a, at least I, that way you can kind of tell what's going on. Well, this thing embeds the the actor in the this, this scene. So um, that was an amazing tool in order to, just to see if the lighting was working. I mean, you, it, it's no longer... You know, you do the math, you do everything you're supposed to, and then you look at it and you go, okay, this is working, or, oh, we better nudge this light, you know, three feet this way, you know. So that was, the the for me, that was the tool to end all tools. Yeah. That was great. Well, we're down to just our last couple of minutes, and I wanted to wrap up our conversation with a little bit of advice to filmmakers, and specifically this one question that we got on Instagram from Fan of Fincher. Um, and I love this question. It is, how important is it for a DP to keep up with technology? And the reason that I love this question is because I think it's so easy to just say, you know, I'm just going to stick to the fundamentals. That's it. I don't need to worry about new technology. It's not about that. It's just about, you know, keeping true to my roots as a photographer, as a cinematographer. It's going back to the fundamentals of film. But then you, with these incredible opportunities uh, throughout your career, you know, Titanic, you certainly, Avatar, Way of Water, all the films in between and before and after, you must have a different relationship with filmmaking technology. And I think your opinion well, on this it, would be great. Yeah, that's 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 a double-edged sword because I think at root, I'm not really a technology-oriented person, and you can ask my wife about that. <laughs> and, <laughs> In fact, yesterday she said, "You shot this movie. I can't believe it." You, know? <laughs> you don't know how to use your cell phone, and you're and you're filming an Avatar movie. That's basically what was happening actually <laughs> at the time. And the, I think just to uh, you should keep up on technology. Maybe not. You don't have to go deep. You have to know what tools are available. And then I'm lucky enough to to have people around me now who can who can come to me and say oh you really need to know about this thing or, mm -hmm. or and whether it's usually it's it's camera oriented or light oriented uh len my chief lighting technician is always showing me new tools you know it it's it's really great and and then another thing that happens is that as i start to get into pre-production i start to to kind of drill down into the script or what's happening. I go, oh, I've got to find out specifically what this technology is about. I, I can't I can't be the uh, dunce in the room about this. But uh, yeah, I do think you need, it, it, in some form, it, it doesn't have to be all the way down to the very marrow of the technology, but you have to know what's out there and, and what people can do. You know, I don't even know if I'm ever going to shoot something like it with a, a virtual LED panel thing, but I'm certainly finding out about it and going to people who know what, what they're doing about it. Mm. So I guess that's my answer. Well, it's a great one. And the film is just, it's just ridiculous. Like how do you even, you can't even, uh, you can't compare it to anything else except for the original avatar. There's really nothing else you can compare it to. And I think, you know, myself and so many fans of this, of the series and the franchise have been waiting a long time for this and you and your team delivered beyond our wildest expectations. So congratulations on just such an incredible film. Thank you. I'm, I'm having a fun time uh, getting to talk about it again. You know, it's great. Thank you for that opportunity. All right, I want to thank Russell Carpenter ASC, the director of photography for Avatar, The Way of Water, 
for coming on the show and sharing his experiences and knowledge with all of you guys. And of course, I want to thank you as well for supporting the show and asking your questions. I love the audience questions. You guys are smart. You're in the industry. You're working. You have great questions, oftentimes better questions than I do. So I kind of incorporate your questions into mine, but I always want to give you credit. So those of you that did ask, I do appreciate it. And for those of you who I didn't get to ask your question, it is what it is. We ran out of time, but please do continue to submit your questions because I love it and I will always do my best to get them on the show. Of course, I want to thank Connor Crosby, who produces this show. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. If you want to follow me, you can. I'm on Instagram at Ben Consoli, B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I. But of course, all things Go Creative Show are at gocreativeshow.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where you can not only hear the show, but see the show. So thank you guys for supporting us, and we will see you next time on the next episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. <laughs>